to the Practical Prophetic, where prophetic ministry is made practical. I'm Beth Wingate, I'm your host, and welcome to the podcast. On our podcast today, we are going to have an episode of Prophetic History, and today we are going to key in on a very important man in prophetic history named F.F. Bosworth. Before I begin to talk about F.F. Bosworth, though, I do want to throw in a disclaimer. So as I do these history episodes and as we move through several important figures in prophetic history, I just want to say that doesn't, because I'm highlighting this person, doesn't mean that I necessarily endorse everything they believed. We can't judge everything today by the standards that we judge history of, of that particular time. That's called presentism. And so F.F. Uh, F. Bosworth, in his later years, he did embrace replacement theology, which I reject. And uh, he had a few little things that, that uh, he, had, he had said and done that I don't 100% agree with. However, I do think he's an important person in Christian history and in prophetic history. And I do want to highlight his story. And so I'm going to start off by going to the very beginning. Fred Francis Bosworth, who went by FF, was born in 1877 in Utica, Nebraska. His parents were Burton F. and Amelia Bosworth, and he was one of six children. His father had served in the Civil War as a Union soldier, and they were a Methodist family. So that sort of sets the very beginning of Bosworth's life. When he was about nine years old, Bosworth went with his father to a Union uh, Civil War reunion that they had for soldiers. And there he heard someone play a trumpet. Actually, it was a coronet, which is a type of a trumpet. And he fell in love with the trumpet. And he, uh, he ended up saving up money, and he bought himself a trumpet over the next year or so and began, began to teach himself how to play, and he became a really good trumpeter. When he was about 10 years old, his family moved to University Place, Nebraska, and there he really became a, a bona fide musician. In fact, he went on to play for the Nebraska State Band, which uh, I'm assuming was a big honor at that time. He also had a lot of odd jobs. He was about 16 years old during this time, and he had worked with a local doctor. Now, while he was there, he began to develop some lung problems. He will also, during this time, go with a girlfriend of his to a revival service. And in 1893, at 16 years old, he gives his heart to to Christ and becomes uh, born again at this revival meeting that he goes to. Uh, in 1895, his parents will move to Fitzgerald, Georgia. Now, there was a colony there that had been established by Union soldiers, former Union soldiers. And uh, his father, being in the Union Army, had been really something he identified with, stayed connected with, and really shaped the rest of his life. And so this had a huge impact on the Bosworth's lives. And so they moved to this colony where his family will then live in Georgia. During this time, when he's about 18 years old, F.F. has a lung condition 
that gets much worse. There's some indication that he stayed behind in Nebraska because he was playing with the state band. And uh, it was during a visit when he comes to Fitzgerald that while he's there, he's about 18, 19 years old, and he is deathly sick with this condition in his lungs. Later, he'll be diagnosed as having tuberculosis. Now, at the time, they didn't know what was wrong with him, but it, it later they found out he had TB. And uh, there was an older Methodist woman named Maddie Perry. She was a door-to-door Bible salesman. In fact, she's known as saying that she walked uh, the foothills of northern Georgia selling Bibles and evangelizing to people. And so she wasn't a, uh, you know, like a necessarily a paid evangelist or traveling evangelist. She was a Bible salesman, but she also considered it her ministry. And while she would sell Bibles, she also would basically, I guess you could say she pioneered door-to-door evangelism. I love that. I'm going to have to do a story on her in the future. And so she somehow gets connected with F.F. Bosworth, and she prays for him, and he is healed of his lung condition. And so uh, that really sparks something in him. And here's the prophetic part. I just want to talk about this for a minute. You know, really, this woman, Maddie Perry, she's the one who sparked an ember in Bosworth that uh, has rippled out to today and has had mass impact on the church and so and on divine healing being taught in the church and so uh, an entire denomination (laughs) coming to birth because of this man and so we'll get into all of that but I just want to talk about the prophetic impact sometimes when you pray for someone when you feel led of the Holy Spirit to just pray for someone and they get healed or they get set free, or they get delivered, or they get the answer they were seeking from the Lord, you never know the impact that that can have as it ripples out through time into the future. And so when this lady, Maddie Perry, prayed healing on F.F. Bosworth, she had no idea the impact that this would have on, on the world. And so uh, this is just amazing. And so I want to challenge you as the listener, the listener to this podcast, that when you are prophetically led of the Holy Spirit to be the hands and feet of God, ministering to people, go back and listen to the episodes on prophetic evangelism. You know, this is like that. When you're led of the Holy Spirit to pray for people, to pray healing over someone, to, to give someone a word of knowledge, to, to pray deliverance on somebody. Maybe they're bound up with addiction or, or whatever, anger, unforgiveness. When, when you help minister to people being led of the Holy Spirit, you never know the impact that could have on someone. Really, in, in the courts of heaven, a lot of F.F. Bosworth's ministry is going to be partially credited to Miss Maddie Perry, the door-to-door Bible salesman who would evangelize people as she presented them with the opportunity to purchase a Bible. Uh, This is amazing to me, just absolutely amazing. In the late 1800s in Georgia, this, this lady prays for healing over this young man who has tuberculosis, 
and he gets healed. And his whole life is transformed. In fact, this healing will mark his whole life and his whole ministry. Let's fast forward a little bit. In 1900, he will marry Estelle Hyde. Her father also was uh, one of these Union soldiers who had moved to this colony, former Union soldier, and they're living in this colony in Fitzgerald. So they they had uh, their parents in common, and, and they marry. And in uh, 1901, they are attending a home meeting. It was very popular back then to have these little home meetings. And if a missionary had gone off and was back in town, they would be invited to come to home meetings or to a local church or university, and they would share about their experiences, maybe bring some artifacts, and that's how they raised money to go back on the mission field. But this was a big deal. I mean, look, you don't have television. Radio is not really that popular at this point. You have newspapers, pamphlets, magazines, but you, you know, this, this was a big deal to have someone who had been to a foreign country to come back and talk about those experiences. Well, this lady had been to Zion City in Chicago, Illinois. Now, let me talk for just a minute about Zion City because this had a huge impact on Bosworth also. So there was a man named uh, Alexander Dowie who had a large ministry. In fact, he ended up uh, building a whole city, sort of a utopian uh, Christian city, basically. And and that was very popular. Let me just stop and say this, too. This was uh, around the time of World War One, and this was a popular sort of idea that you would have these planned communities, planned cities, uh, utopian thinking, uh, there was in Europe, socialism was really on the rise. And so uh, as, as these kingdoms and these monarchies are falling and this new forms of government are coming, it's sort of the, a golden age of utopian thinking. And so Dowie, who had a very successful ministry, he was very flamboyant, a little outlandish at times. He, uh, he did have some things that were probably a little extreme. He wore like, uh, is like a Jewish priest garb. You know, he would wear uh, outlandish clothes and he had a, a very flamboyant church and, and things about him. Uh, he claimed to be a prophet. There was just a lot of things about him where that were very interesting. He's a very interesting character. But he did pioneer some things in the Pentecostal movement. And so he has this town. And while he was there, he will host Charles Parham to come and speak at home meetings in Zion. He, I don't think he hosts him yet at the big church. But he, he will have them have Parham come in and speak at some home meetings within Zion City. And so it is during this time that a lady who had been to one of these meetings and who had heard Charles Parham, she comes back at one of these home meetings in Fitzgerald, Georgia, and speaks to Bosworth and his wife and tells about these experiences. Well, Uh, Parham, who was at Zion, and this lady had been to see him there. Let me talk about him for just a minute. So he is instrumental in Azusa Street. He's the man who taught at the school in Kansas 
where he taught on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe early on it was called Second Blessing, and uh, that was attended by William Seymour, who will go on and be the person who actually uh, starts Azusa Street, where they have a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of the people who were in Parham's seminary class are the ones who will go on and be instrumental in Azusa. So this lady has come back from Zion after hearing Parham talk about the things at Azusa Street, and she's sharing this with Bosworth and his wife at this small home meeting. And this is in 1901. And so she's talking to them about Dowie, about Zion City, about Azusa Street. Uh, And by the way, Azusa Street had happened earlier in that year in 1901. So this is fresh. I mean, it just had happened. And so she's basically giving a a report as as a witness, as someone who had heard Parham and and Parham is relaying to to them. So in 1906, you're going to see that Bosworth and his wife make a radical decision that they are going to move to Zion City. They're so inspired by this lady uh, about her talking about the baptism and the Holy Spirit, talking about Azusa Street, talking about Zion, that they make the decision to move there. Uh, and while they're there, Parham is, speak, uh, is invited to speak at one of these home meetings. Well, when they move to Zion, their neighbor who lives directly across the street, is a man named John G. Lake. Well, if you know anything about Christian history, you know that he will go on to be a faith healer himself and have large faith healing crusades. And he basically spends most of his time in Africa where tens of thousands will attend his meetings and have miraculous healings with signs and wonders. And I mean, he's just got an amazing story all by himself. So when the Bosworths moved to Zion, John G. Lake is their across-the-street neighbor. Well, these two neighbors become fast friends, and they go to another one of these home meetings where Parham is again speaking. Uh, so Parham would come back and forth to Zion, and Zion had become sort of an epicenter for uh, early Pentecostals. They didn't even have a title at this point, but this will be uh, sort of the epicenter after Azusa would be Zion City in Illinois and Chicago. And so Bosworth will go to another meeting, and then he's invited sometime around this time, he's invited in 1906 to go to Azusa. And so John G. Lake and F.F. Bosworth go to Azusa Street. They will meet Seymour. They'll go to meetings. And it is there that he receives the baptism in the Holy Spirit and that he is called to preach. And so he uh, makes a decision to join with a man named Cyrus Frockler. And he works for his ministry full time beginning in 1907. Now, Cyrus Frockler had worked with Alexander Dowie. In fact, he is involved with writing um, the magazine that Dowie has, and it was called Leaves of Healing. And so he is involved in his ministry, and uh, he goes on himself to have a 
pretty large ministry where he will travel and he goes to other countries as well. And so for about a year, I think up to two years, he's going to work under, uh, Bosworth is going to work under this man named Cyrus Frockler, who is an early sort of traveling faith healer who holds like tent revivals. Now, yeah, let's back up and remember that even in the in the mid to late 1800s, you had camp meeting style revivals, especially in rural areas. And you had um, like camp style meetings like the Cane Ridge Revival. And it was a pioneer movement. And, and now as people are moving into the cities, this is in the early 1900s, 1906 through about 1909. Now they have these huge tents They'll take and they'll set them up or they'll go into a large auditorium and they'll have revival services. And so that's what they begin to do. And they're basically there to spread the Pentecostal message. And, And that includes baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it also includes divine healing. That's something that marks the Pentecostals as different from a lot of the other mainline denominations. And they're all going to come out of those mainline denominations, all of these early Pentecostals, pretty much, uh, with Azusa Street sort of being this uh, marker of like this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, we move forward. And in 1909, the Bosworths make the decision to move to Dallas, Texas. It is there that they plant and start a church. And they name it the First Assembly of God Church of Dallas, Texas. And this church is going to have just an amazing story. I'll give you some examples. This church will end up having a 10-year revival with daily meetings, with healing, signs and wonders documented, people lined up to get me for 10 years. They just have this amazing revival. And so um, you can only imagine what that was like. And so they, uh, they're going to host in 1912 an evangelist named Maria Woodworth Edder. She alone will hold a revival meeting that lasts for six months straight. And it's just, I mean, signs, wonders, miracle, the whole bit. During this time... Bosworth has his church, but he's also invited to go and speak at other churches in the area. Uh, One of these churches that he's invited to around the time that Edder comes to his church is in Hearn, Texas. Well, this church was predominantly African-American. Now, let's set the scene. 1912, uh, he's a white minister going to a black church. And some of the people there who obviously were white were angry about this. They, they uh, were upset. And so they threatened him for holding integrated meetings, which, by the way, this was a huge marker of the meetings at Azusa. And one of the things that set Zion City apart, it was completely integrated. Dowie uh, actually, if you'll go back and listen to the episode on Amanda Berry Smith, uh, she was a black minister who was an evangelist who had traveled all over the world. And uh, she begins in her later years of life to open an orphanage. And Dowie invites her 
to uh, open her orphanage at Zion City. And it was an orphanage primarily for black children. And so um, his, his town was integrated right there in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. And so he was a pioneer in that way, very, you know, open-minded and liberal as far as race is concerned, Uh, which, by the way, all the Pentecostals were. Uh, We could have a long conversation about um, how that the Pentecostals were really ahead of their time as far as racial issues, because Seymour, who is uh, the founder basically of Azusa Street, is a black man, and it was a completely mixed congregation, not only with black and white, but Asian and Hispanic. And so just amazing how how God chose to do it that way. Anyway, so in Hearn, Texas, this group of uh, basically racists were angry about this. And uh, because he had held an additional service at this black church, uh, some men beat him with two by fours. They I don't know how this, you know, how it went, but they took away his transportation. They beat him up. He was bloodied. He had some uh, broken bones. I mean, they beat him up good. And in fact, he said he had to walk to the next town. And all he had was this uh, suitcase. He didn't even go, get to go back and get all of his stuff. And But he said that um, it was not going to stop him. <laughs> in fact, it only strengthened his resolve. And he had a large following among the mi- minority communities also because of that. Uh, let's, let's fast forward now to 1914. So something amazing happens with Bosworth. He becomes an integral part of the formation of the Assemblies of God, which was a, one of the first Pentecostal denominations. In fact, uh, I don't want to go too far into this story, but it does have a racial element. Uh, the Church of God in Christ was a prim- primarily a black denomination, and some of the white ministers were not received, especially in the South. And so the Assemblies of God was formed to sort of be a all-white or predominantly white sister denomination to the Church of God in Christ. Just a little side note there if you didn't know that piece of history. Uh, so it's during this time that the Assemblies of God is formed and that F.F. F. Bosworth plays a major role in that. And I don't have time to go into that whole story, but it's an amazing story. He's, he's, uh, he actually leaves in uh, 1918, and he joins with the Alliance Church, the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, really over just a small uh, issue concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There was some, early, you know, early on in the Pentecostal movement, there was a lot of disagreement about the specifics. And so uh, it was over a doctrinal difference about the specifics that they sort of I think it was an amicable split. It didn't seem like it was hostile in any way, um, but he wanted to be true to what he believed, and I can respect that. And and really today, the Alliance Church, in a lot of ways, is like a sister denomination to the Assemblies of God. They, they um, I know that one church that I was involved in that was Assembly of God, our pastor's wife worked at the Alliance Church offices. And um, that there was some crossover at times with, you know, things they would do, uh, organizations. In fact, uh, there was long story, but they were they get along fine. Anyway, in 1919, his wife will pass away 
actually of tuberculosis. And so it is during this time that he really draws close to some of his friends, uh, John G. Lake being one of them at Zion. And then he'll also befriend E.W. Kenyon during this time. He actually, because of his uh, living in Zion and his proximity to so many ministers, he will form lifelong friendships with a lot of other men that go on to have their own very large ministries. And uh, after his wife passes away, those those friendships are just strengthened. I think that his friend, friends really surrounded him and, and he would travel with them. And, and so that's what's happening during this time. In 1920, he begins to hold large meetings. Uh, he begins to preach and evangelize and hold large meetings. He begins to share uh, mainly about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's an early Pentecostal pioneer in a lot of ways. In 1920, he is asked to preach at a, a large meeting, and the, the person hosting the meeting asks him to speak on divine healing. Okay, now remember, as a, a teenager, uh, he was healed of tuberculosis, and uh, we definitely want to give Miss Maddie Perry her, the Bible salesman, her due because she's the one that prayed for him to have divine healing. Now, he's received divine healing. And sadly, you know, I don't have all the answers here, but his wife will pass away of tuberculosis, which I know had to be very difficult for him in his journey. Uh, well, that ends up having him go into a deep study on divine healing. And so he will spend quite a bit of time studying divine healing. And so that night, and this was in 1920, he preaches on divine healing. And he very systematically lays out, you know, uh, a teaching on divine healing. And so at the end, he invited people like he would for an altar call for, uh, for salvation. He does that. And then he also asked people to come forward if they would like to uh, be healed. And everyone that, that he prays for that night is healed. And so that becomes really a huge turning point in his ministry. And he becomes, becomes uh, someone who really focuses in on divine healing. In fact, in 1924, he will have a book that he puts out that's really comprised of about, a, you know, a dozen or more of his uh, sermons that he had really spent a lot of time on where he teaches about divine healing. And so uh, this book will be called Christ the Healer. And it is considered a foundational book on divine healing. It has inspired so many. I mean, this is sort of like uh, one of the most important books on healing. Uh, because of this, he will begin to travel full-time. He becomes a full-time evangelist, uh, and there's a demand for him everywhere he goes. Now, I spent some time, just for you guys as my audience, I spent some time looking through old newspaper articles, and one of the things people would do, during, you, know, you have to remember the times, you have to remember uh, there's a lot of traditionalism in the church, there's resistance to Pentecostalism and, and the teachings on the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Holy Spirit, healing. And so it is very common that when he would come to a town, one of the other pastors or evangelists would challenge him to a debate on divine healing. 
And so he actually ends up accepting several of these. I've I spent time tonight reading probably five different articles where he would go to a meeting and the other evangelists would want to challenge him to a debate on divine healing. And I have to hand it to him. He was very uh, diplomatic, very statesmanlike. He was always very positive. He was gracious in his debate. He would say, I respect the uh, other man. I just simply have a different opinion. And then he would systematically with scripture uh, go through his uh, thesis on divine healing based out of the Bible. And really, that's what makes him a household name during this time. In fact, in 1924, he will take a crusade to Canada, where he would go and speak. And it says in one newspaper article that over 20,000 people came to one meeting. Now, this is you got to remember, this is in 1924. That's a big deal. He was filling up baseball stadiums. He was filling up auditoriums. He was filling up, uh, you know, mass crowds. In one meeting, it says in Canada that 12,000 people at, at one uh, crusade, they were born again. And so he's also an evangelist. And so he's just become a household name. Now, in 1926, he will remarry. Uh, he will marry a lady named Naomi Valentine. And uh, it is with her that he will also start a magazine called Exploits of Faith. And it will have circulation all over the United States and all over the world. It becomes a very important Christian magazine during this time. Now, in 1929, and I'll I'll try to, for the sake of time, hurry through the rest of his story. In 1929, the Depression will hit, and this will have a massive impact on his ministry. Because of this, travel becomes very difficult. He just doesn't have the finances to travel. Uh, the offerings become very slim. I mean, nobody has money. People are out of work. It is. It is, has been a major disruption to society. And so he has a friend in Chicago that he had known uh, because of his connections in Zion City named uh, Paul Rader. Paul Rader works in radio, and because there's just no money for travel, he invites him to speak on the radio program. Well, it just has a tremendous response. And over time, in the early, you know, 1929, he will begin a program called the Sunshine Hour, and it will have a mass appeal all over Chicago, uh, throughout Illinois. And uh, in 1930, he will start the National Radio Revival missionary crusades uh, that they do on the radio. And so they basically have a group of preachers, uh, probably all from Zion. And uh, John G. Lake is one of these. And so they will begin to do basically the same kind of format in their crusades. They will do this on the radio. And then it has picked up and sent out nationally. And that becomes a really big deal. I do want to give one account. In 1933, a 28-year-old man named David Duplessis will attend one of Bosworth's meetings, one of his crusades, and he gives a witness account. And I just have to share this quick story. He said that while he was there at this meeting, there were children there from a school for the deaf. And uh, Bosworth, at, at the conclusion of preaching, about divine healing, asked the children to come forward. And he said he laid his hands on the children. And one by one, he prayed for each of these children who were from the school for the deaf. And every single one of them 
receive their healing. In fact, they said the school for the deaf closed after that in this particular town. And so it's an amazing story, just absolutely amazing. Now, by the 1940s, he makes the decision to move to Florida and to enter retirement. Uh, It is during this time that you have a rise of a whole new crop of young faith healers on the scene. His friend John G. Lake is in Africa now, almost full-time, holding amazing crusades, and he is in retirement. He goes to a meeting in Miami, Florida, and he meets a young faith healer named William Branham. Well, Branham approaches him. He recognized him, knew who he was. You know, he's now an older uh, you know, gentlemen, but but well-known in Pentecostal circles. And he asked him, he says, listen, I'm not the greatest preacher. <laughs> he said, uh, would you please come to my meetings and just say a few words? And would you please mentor me? And so he agrees. And it is uh, during the 40s, especially the early 40s, that he will mentor Branham, Oral Roberts, and T.L. Osborne. Uh, He will become a mentor to many of the faith healers of the 1940s. And uh, he specifically, though, has a close bond with Branham. He'll travel with him. uh, And in 1951, at 74 years old, he begins to go with Branham on a series of worldwide trips. They will take a, a couple of trips to Africa. They'll go to Cuba, Japan, Switzerland, Germany. I mean, they go all over the world. They are international evangelists. And so typically during Branham's meetings, Bosworth will get up and and say a few words. Um, In 1957, he will go back to Africa. I think he had been there probably a dozen times. You know, his friend John G. Lake is there as well. And uh, his last crusade will be in Japan. And then in 1957... Uh, He has a stroke. He's very sick. He almost dies. Branham will come back and be at his bedside. He spends the last couple of years pretty much uh, secluded. Uh, Because he had had this stroke, there's controversy about that because he had been a faith healer. And you got to remember, he had been attacked by people who rejected the message of divine healing. And so Uh, I'm sure, you know, that was contentious for some people. So he pretty much keeps his health low key at this point. And then in 1958, he will pass away at the age of 81, surrounded by his family. And uh, his daughter, in an interview, had said that her father uh, just always said he always desired to just walk with God. What a blessing. And so I want to go back real quick and just touch on the prophetic point and the story of F.F. Bosworth. And I just want to highlight the prophetic part of this. There was a little woman who in the late 1800s walked through the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains selling Bibles door to door and evangelizing. And somehow during that time, she grabs hold of that Jesus is a healer, the same Jesus who healed people in the Bible, in the Gospels, heals today. And so she took that message and she shared it with a young teenage boy 
who had tuberculosis and who was at death's doorstep. And she decides to pray with him and share with him that Jesus is a healer. Well, this young man will go on to have a massive ministry and he will write a book called Christ the Healer. And that his healing ministry, his story of being healed is what marks his life. And so I want to encourage you to be like Maddie Perry, to have the prophetic foresight, to be willing and able to share the love of Jesus, to share healing, to share a word of knowledge, to share salvation, to share deliverance with people, and to be led by the Holy Spirit when you can do it. What a powerful prophetic testimony we have in the life of F.F. Bosworth. I hope you have a blessed day, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Prophetic History. for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll be informed next time I post. Thank you again and have a blessed day.